When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you can save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to another installment of the uber-popular Brown Sugar and Spice. I'm one of your hosts, VP DZ. If you guys want to call up, man, the number is 646-200-3462. Once again, the number is 646-200-3462. We got a great show for you guys tonight. As you know, we are continually to give you guys these dope, classic interviews. And you know what I'm saying? I got to bring... The host with the most on, we got Dr. Faye in the building. Dr. Faye, what's happening? What's up, DZ? What's happening? You you sound perky. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well. That's, I'm doing well. That's an inside joke, people. <laughs> um, <Dr>. Faye. <laughs> so, so Dr. Faye, <laughs> 
Nikki, you tell us what we got going on tonight. So tonight's show um, is a very special segment to me. Uh, it's about, you know, mental health in the black community. And I initially, you know, wanted to talk about, you know, the stigma of being a black woman and the strong black woman phrase and, you know, how, mm-hmm. you know, it's interpreted that we're so strong and that we don't need help. And sometimes, you know, you start getting to know people and you're talking to them and then they're really crying for help, but they're just not showing it because society has told us that we have to endure all of these things by ourselves. So mm-hmm. really passionate about that. And, you know, I often read about students who are in school and they're depressed and just suicide and just not something that's readily discussed in our community because, you know, right, we hear like, right. oh, well, black people, we don't, we don't, we don't kill ourselves. That's, that's not for us to do. And you'll be surprised yeah. that people who are having these suicidal ideations or thoughts, you know, about harming themselves. And they're not going to express it to people because there's a stigma that, oh, you're crazy. And I feel like in our community, it's a sign of weakness. Then, of course, uh-huh. in light of recent events, you know, actually seeing a black man being murdered, by police, Alton Sterling, um, RIP, and Philando Castile. You know, I just felt some type of way about it. You know, you're seeing all this hate on social media. You have hate on the news. There was despair. There was anger. There was sadness. And it was just so much going on. And I thought, like, I'm an adult, but I can only imagine a young black child living in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans or the inner city of Chicago who sees this every day. Like, this is an everyday part of life. And, like, what are we doing to protect ourselves from this? And, yes, you know, Black Lives Matter, I'm all about that movement. But what about our black Mm -hmm. minds? Like, how are we keeping ourselves protected and enriched? So I think this show is absolutely right on time. Mm. I couldn't have put it any better myself. Um, And speaking of that, uh, we have our guest of honor on the show now. We have... Dr. Adia Gooden on. Hello, doctor. Hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> hey, you what's going on? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I said she's perky what? too. So there you go. <laughs> oh, yeah, I see. Everybody's perky tonight. <laughs> so, 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 Dr. Gooden, welcome to uh, Brown Sugar and Spice. Thank you for uh, coming on with us tonight. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now, uh, first question is, I got to ask you now, so what is your, you're, you're a doctor, and now what is your, is your specialty, like, as far as? Yeah, so I'm sorry. Like Maybe I didn't. So, oh, okay. I, I, I thought didn't, I, I was I didn't tripping. I hear you in, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try to answer. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I have my PhD in clinical psychology, and mm-hmm. um. I don't specialize in treating any specific uh, mental illness or disorder. I'm kind of a generalist in that way, but I do work at a college counseling center. So most of my time is spent doing therapy with um, undergraduate and graduate students. And I also have some um, specific training um, in working with couples and doing couples therapy. And then, then I have a particular interest in um, black women's mental health and the well-being and mental health of black people and black youth overall. Okay. Cool. Now, so, Dr. Gooden, let, now, me, how, let me ask you this. Go ahead, Stevie. No, no, you good. Okay. So, Dr. Gooden, why mental health? Like, where did that passion come from? Yeah, that's a good question. So I always have, like, two answers. So one, uh, which is a significant one, is that both of my parents are actually clinical psychologists, which is kind of unusual. Um, And they by no means pushed me into the field, but seeing them really – enjoy their work, enjoy helping people, um, both expose me to the to clinical psychology as a field and the fact that it can be a profession that's really fulfilling. And then for me, I'm just, I've always been interested in people. I really enjoy talking to people. I like it when people come to me for advice or support. Um, I like emphasizing. And so it just turned out to be a really good fit for me. Mm, okay. 
Now, now speaking of talking to people and everything, do you find with some of the conversations that you have, um, are they tough conversations to have with people, or is it almost that you can have you gotten to the point where you can almost diagnose what's the problem within the first five minutes of having a conversation with somebody? Um, that's a good question. Uh, it's interesting because I Thank think you. when <laughs> <you're welcome. laughs> when, <laughs> when I interact with people randomly and they find out that I'm a clinical psychologist, so now my clients, people are always like, are you analyzing me? Are you trying to figure me out? And, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> unless I'm trying, like that's not something that I'm automatically just trying to label or put somebody into a category. If I'm actually mm-hmm. thinking about it, then I can put mm-hmm. things together. I think I have good insight into how people work and why people do the things they do that might not always be obvious. But in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, working with clients, it really depends, right? There are some people who, you know, they tell me, they can give me a few sentences and I'm like, oh, that's anxiety, right? Like it's very similar mm-hmm. to a lot of other things that I've heard other people talk about, things that I've experienced that I can kind of tell quickly. And then there are other mm-hmm. people who have much more complicated experiences and symptoms, and it takes much longer to really get the full picture and understand everything that's going on for that person. Okay. Cool, cool. So, Dr. Good, let me ask you this. What do you think, what are your thoughts about the phrase, oh, she's a strong black woman? Because to me, I don't know, I kind of ambivalent towards it. Like, I'm like, okay, yeah, in one sense it's a compliment, but then, on the other hand, I feel like it creates, like, this this false image of what's really going on inside the woman's head mm-hmm. or behind closed doors to the point it becomes detrimental to her health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I think I I agree with you. Um, I think there are some, some benefits, right, to be viewed as strong um, and stable and able to withstand a lot of difficult experiences can be an asset, right? It can be a really good thing. And I think that for women in the black community, it can also become a restriction, right? It can also feel like it means if you're strong, you don't cry. If you're strong, you don't need help from people. If you're strong, you don't need to take time for yourself, right? So all of these things sort of place restrictions on this idea of what it means to be a strong black woman, and it often doesn't include asking for help, slowing down, taking care of yourself, um, going to the doctor, uh, going to a therapist, right? And so then it becomes this restraining, restricting thing and limits people from taking care of themselves and feeling like it's okay to have a hard day, to have a hard time, to be struggling with depression, for example. So for that for that busy woman who has a lot on her plate in life just seems overwhelming and say I'm going to create this scenario hypothetical situation you have okay. a black woman three kids she's working two jobs like where does she find the time to seek counseling and how long do your sessions normally last Yeah that's a really good question I think that is so tough right because if you're barely able to sit in watching a little bit of TV at the end of the day before you go to bed or whatever thing you might want to do, it is hard to think about how you fit in a therapy session. Um, and I, I, think, I think sometimes it requires some creativity, right? Therapy sessions usually last 45 minutes, 45 to 50 minutes. Um, so it's usually once a week. And it's 45 to 50 minutes. So that in and of itself is not a super long time. Of course, it will include like a commute, right? If you don't have access to a car, then that's going to be longer and more involved. Um, Thinking about it as it's a short amount of time that can make a lot, a big difference in your life, right? So having the space where somebody is accepting and affirming and it's just about you, right? You can talk about whatever's going on. You can send your frustrations. You can process things you've been experiencing. All of that is really helpful and can help people navigate the busyness and the stress of their everyday life, um, you know, even if if it's hard to fit in. The other good thing is that most therapists in private practice see clients in the evening and on weekends, right? So they know that people are working and you can figure out a time. And if you have a job that has, like, 
a night shift, there's more availability during the day, during the weekday. But you can see a therapist at 7, sometimes 8 p.m., and kind of all day Saturday. Um, and so there's some flexibility around finding a time that might work for your schedule and when you might have child care. Um, yeah, I didn't think about that. That's feasible. No, I had I had a follow up question to the the strong black woman. So do you do you sure. get those you get those clients right that come in or those patients that come in and they are strong. Like you can tell, like they're strong. They tell you like their life story. Like it's hard. You know, they they might have some death in the family. They might be the 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 person person with the most mental stability out of everybody that they are surrounded with. And do you, do you, mm-hmm. when you get those people in there, is it harder to talk to them knowing that they're one of those, those strong individuals? Like, do you understand where they're coming from? Do, is it like a release for them when they come in and they just let everything that's bothering them out? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think it depends. Um, this is, so what I've noticed, and this, and, and I think what kind of the research about um, African-American clients has demonstrated is that often it takes a little longer to really get into stuff, right? So there's, there's this period of developing trust and building the relationship that needs to happen before people are willing to let their guard down and really open up. And that is, you know, it's a process, and I think it makes sense given that African-Americans, there's reasons for us to be distrustful of people in power, of people in medical or mental health systems, right? There there are lots of reasons not to, quote-unquote, air your dirty laundry or tell a stranger your business, right? And so I think what often happens is that this slow process, right? And as a therapist, I have to be or us therapists have to be patient with that process and understand that it takes time, that it makes sense for someone to need to trust you and get to know you a little bit better before they tell you everything. And then once that has kind of developed, that trust and that relationship has developed, then people tend to feel much more comfortable opening up and sharing kind of the burdens that they've been carrying for so long. Uh, Okay. I can, no. I can definitely relate to that, and this is more of a, a personal anecdote. So my mom passed away almost two years ago. And so, of course, you know, when you're in college and or professional school, they have these counseling services. So I had a friend suggest, like, hey, you know, she hadn't quite um, – she hadn't passed away yet, but pretty much, mm-hmm. you know, her prognosis was fatal. And so – and I was just like, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. So I did, I did give it a shot, but – it's so funny that you say that because I went and I sat on the little sofa, whatever, and the, the um, therapist, she started asking me these questions. Probably mm-hmm. about five minutes into it, I just stopped the conversation. I felt mm-hmm. so uncomfortable. I was like, I don't, I don't know her. I don't know you. Mm-hmm. Like, I yeah. felt like, like this isn't your problem. I'm not comfortable telling mm-hmm. you my business. And I literally just walked out, and I never went back. Mm. I was mm. so uncomfortable. And I don't know if I felt like I was being weak. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I was just really, really uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm. You know, I think I think that's a common experience. I think, one, um, I think along with this idea of the strong black women is this socialization that we have to not be vulnerable and open about hard things that we experience, right? Not even, not necessarily with our partners or our family, sometimes not even with our friends. And so then to go into a therapy room and to be asked to be vulnerable and open about the hardest aspects of your life, it's going to feel uncomfortable because it's going to be very new. And so, Part of it is learning to be vulnerable and open because that is part of our humanity, right? Connecting to the parts of ourselves that are soft and tender. Um, but it, it takes time, and it is uh, uncomfortable. And if somebody, if somebody out there listening is thinking of trying therapy, it's always okay to say to the therapist, I'm uncomfortable. Can we slow down? I realize that that's a really hard thing to say. And it's okay, right? A therapist is not going to be angry with you. We will be responsive. We will say, okay, like, let, let me know. And we will slow down when we need to slow down. We will switch gears when we need to switch gears because we're really wanting to help and wanting to make the process go smoothly. 
Um, for uh, everyone. So, so to to ask, do you think therapy helps or hinders relationships at certain points? Like, I, I know the the correct answer to be like, well, of course it helps. But is there any <laughs> like when I say hinder, when I say hinder, can therapy be the reason why a relationship split? You know, because at the end of the day, maybe this couple does want to stay together, but at the same time. You know, maybe it's just not right for them. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So um, when a couple is having problems, but only one person goes to therapy and they go to individual therapy, um, that can be not helpful for the couple relationship. Because if you're one partner and you're frustrated in your relationship, what you're going to do with your therapist is you're probably going to complain about your partner and all the things you're doing and all the things that you don't like that you're doing. And you're probably going to talk very little about what you might be doing to contribute to the problem, right, how this is a back and forth and a mutual thing. And as therapists, we work with the person in front of us, right? So, it's un- so if you're in individual therapy, your individual therapist isn't going to say, are you sure he just did this out of nowhere and just was acting like this? Are you sure you didn't do something wrong? Like, it's going to be affirming and it's going to be like, okay, yeah. And, and you can see the picture of your partner as this evil person. And the therapist is not know, right? And so that's a time. So if you are having couple relationship problems, it's really best to go to couples therapy, right? Okay. Um, mm-hmm. However, I will note that sometimes the end of couple therapy is the outcome of couple therapy is a breakup. And I think you touched on the reason is because sometimes couples aren't compatible and sometimes there are unresolvable issues. And so that can sometimes be highlighted through couple therapy and then partners may decide, you know, this really doesn't work. And so a couple therapist is not meaning to break a couple up, but sometimes that's kind of the natural progression of the therapy and figuring out what the issues are in the relationship. But a lot of times it really helps people to improve their relationships and be better partners. Right. Now, let me let me ask you this, Doctor. So <clears throat> I, I like to play this role where I come from a completely ignorant standpoint. And, okay. again, as I, as I explain to people on the show – when I say ignorant standpoint, I don't mean like I'm an idiot. What I mean is I don't have any <laughs> knowledge <laughs> of of the of the subject matter. So I come okay. into your office. I come into your office, mm-hmm. and I'm like, listen, doc, I don't know how to feel about what's going on in society today. You know, I'm a young black mm-hmm. man that, you know, I look a certain way, but I'm completely different than what society dictates. And I can, I'll be honest with you, it's just I'm scared. You know, I'm scared because I feel like, you know, I might be next. You know, how do you have that conversation with especially a a, a black male as far as what's happening in society? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think the first thing is empathy and validation, right? So really acknowledging, like, this makes sense. It makes sense that you're scared. It's scary, right? Mm -hmm. There are... There's real evidence that shows that being a black man in the U.S., being a person of color in the U.S. right now is a risky thing. Um, Mm. And it's important to acknowledge that that's scary and it's stressful and it would wear Mm -hmm. on you. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of it is kind of, I think the challenge with therapy is sort of what you're maybe alluding to is that, we're working with individuals or couples or families. And in the therapy room, we're not intervening, intervening on the societal issues that are very real and cause stress and trauma and, you know, mental illness. And so we can validate and acknowledge um, what someone's feeling and we can sort of sit in some of the hopelessness and the frustration and all of that And I think that that's more powerful than many people understand, just to be validated and to know that what you're feeling is not wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are some limitations, right? So it might be a conversation of how do you take care of yourself right now, right? What does that look like for you? Um, 
how do you, you know, how do you respond? Are there things, is there a way that you'd like to try to address some of these issues, right? Would that help you to feel better that you're, you know, trying to solve the problem? Can we talk about how you could use your energy and resources for that? Um, so, yeah, I would say empathy, validation, thinking about self-care, taking care of yourself in the midst of a really difficult situation, and then also helping someone to think about, okay, so wh- what do you want to do? How do you want to use your time and energy in a way that would feel good for you? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Dr. Dylan, let me ask you this. So um, this is a follow-up question to the mental health of the black male so as mm-hmm. a you know a nurturer as a mother or a spouse and you see what's going on in the community you know there's black men being you know shot by other black males I want to acknowledge that because that mm-hmm. is a problem in our community and you have black males who are often profiled and unjustly targeted by the police and sometimes murdered executed mm-hmm. so do you think it's helpful for us to tell them like it's a problem to show weakness. Like, don't cry, mm. suck it up. This is the way the world is. Like, where do they? What's their safety net? Where do they go when societal pressures just become too much? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So, I absolutely think it is unhelpful to tell anyone. I think, especially boys and men that they should not cry and that they should suck it up. I think it's it just, to me, it's a reaction out of the anxiety that we feel when we see someone showing vulnerability, right? So if you're the wife um, of a black man and he comes home and he's really distressed and maybe tearful and upset, you may have anxiety about seeing the person that you is your rock, is strong, supports you, as showing vulnerability. And they're human, right? The black men in our lives, the black boys are human beings, and human beings experience emotions, including sadness, including fear. And what we do when we tell people to suck it up and stop crying is that we deny their humanity, that we say you cannot have this human experience. And I realize that it's hard, and I realize that this is a way that we in the black community have tried to adapt to all of the struggles and challenges we've experienced over the decades, and it's something that I would really love to see stop. Um, because we're all going to benefit if people are able to acknowledge how they're feeling and to share that with their partners and loved ones. Because, yeah, you're right, where else do you go, right? If you can't go to your partner, if you can't go to your parent, if you're a kid, if you can't go to your boys or your friends and say you're scared and hurt, where do you go? You, you, you're alone and you stuff it inside and you harden on the outside, which is really not helpful for anyone. Let me ask you this, uh, doctor. Now, I, again, I, now I want to play devil's advocate with you. Now, okay. You're, you're a young, you're, you're a young black doctor. Uh, you see what's going on in society. So what do you, yeah. how, how do you, as a doctor, putting you on the hot seat? Let's say a, mm-hmm. uh, a police officer comes in, a white police officer comes into your therapy session, and he tells you, you know, you know something along the lines of, yeah, I was one of the officers that shot one of the black men and killed them. And to be honest with you, I don't feel guilty about it. I feel like it was right for me to do. You know, how do you go about? on your end, having this conversation on a professional level and not letting any personal feelings get involved in having this conversation? Yeah, yeah so that's an interesting question. I I actually think that in that situation I would have to, I'm going to use like a legal term, recuse myself. Like that, that's probably mm-hmm. not someone that I could do therapy with because I would have mm-hmm. so many reactions, right? I think that if somebody, right, who shot and killed a police officer who shot and killed a black person and said they had no regrets, there was no remorse, like I, I would be I would feel very angry. And I don't think that I could be um I wouldn't be an appropriate therapist to treat that person. And so ethically mm-hmm. I would need to refer that person to somebody else. Now if the if somebody came in and said, you know, I did this 
And so, like, for example, I have no idea what was happening um, with the officer who shot Philando Castile. But he was freaking mm-hmm. out afterwards, right? And so if it was, right. like, an officer who came in shocked and totally bewildered, it would still be hard mm-hmm. for me, but I might be able to work. And I think the work would be, like, okay, let's talk about the reality of what it's like to kill someone. And let's talk about the reality that we all have biases. You may have those biases, too. But the person would have to be open to it because part of it is, you know, there, I, I believe in infusing some kind of social justice into therapy, but therapy is not for mm-hmm. me as a therapist. It's for the client. So it's sort of this fine right. line. If, if, if somebody came in and said, I want to figure this out, why did I do this? I feel horrible. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. I thought I wasn't racist, but I did this. Yeah, okay, we can mm-hmm. work with that. It's going to be hard, but we can certainly work with that, or I can. Well, that's, that's good to know. So, so I'm sure you've been on like social media and, and television over the past two weeks. Like, do you feel like it's helpful or harmful? Because I feel like when you turn on the news, there's something negative. Mm-hmm. Depending on your news feed on social media, it could go either way from racism to, you know, some very happy someone's having a baby. But most of the times, like, in light of recent events, it's had a negative impact, at least on my emotions and most of the people on mm-hmm. my timeline. Um, witnessing someone being executed by the cops. So mm-hmm. when you when someone starts to feel that way and they feel like they need to detox from the news or social media, do you think that's the way to do it? Is it kind of like burying your head in the sand? Or should you still persevere through it and, I don't know, have some positive discourse from it? Like, at what point does this become harmful to your health? Yeah, that's a good question. I, You know, I think it's really about paying attention to how you're feeling and what works for you. Um, so if you are feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling upset every time you go, to a news media outlet or go on social media and you see something else, right? If that's how you're feeling, then I think it makes sense to moderate your use, right? And for some people that may be, you know, I'm unplugging for a week or two, right? Like I'm just not going to do this because it's not helpful to me. Um, And if I spend all day on Facebook or Twitter or whatever and I'm reading about this stuff over and over, I can't do my job, I can't, right, I can't engage in the world as a productive, you know, citizen. And so, so I think deciding to take some time away is different than burying your head in the sand. And for other people mm-hmm. it might be, you know, I can do this for an hour a day. And I'm not going to do it right when I wake up, and I'm not going to do it right before I go to bed because it'll color the rest of my day or color, you know, it'll negatively affect my sleep. But I want to, I want to know what's going on, but I'm going to moderate it, right? So part of it is, okay, so what works for me? What doesn't work for me? What's the balance, right? Are there people who come up on my news feed who are really obnoxious, and every time I see a post, it pisses me off? Do I need to just unfollow them? Like, is it just unhelpful for me to get – activated and angry, right? Because part of it is thinking about, like kind of what I was saying earlier is, you know, can you take care of yourself? Can you contribute to something positive in the world? And if those things are keeping you from that, then it's probably not so helpful. So figuring out what the right balance for you is, um, I think, is the best strategy. And being honest with yourself and not feeling bad about what you end up deciding. So it's okay to block people is what you're telling me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's fine, right? Like, why why do you need to hear somebody be hurtful, hateful, ignorant? Like, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I, people will have an argument, like, you should know what people who think differently than you feel. And I think it's different if somebody's sharing a different political view versus if somebody's being hateful or prejudiced or something like that. Like, you don't, there's no reason you need to listen to that or read it, in my view. I prohibitively so, agree. I, I my question, okay, so what do you say as 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 a therapist to that interracial couple that walks in and they just don't know how to deal with it? Like, you know, one side is is affected by it and one side doesn't understand 
what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, you know, I think for that it would be a process of trying to help them get on the same page, right? So for the person mm-hmm. who doesn't understand, it's trying to help their partner be effective, communicate in a constructive way um, about what they're experiencing so hopefully their partner can um, hear it. And if the partner who doesn't understand is resistant to being open and understanding, it's kind of exploring that, right? So what is what about this is making you want to deny how hard it is or deny the realities of the situation? What does that mean? Uh, what does it mean that you, you know, you're engaged in an interracial relationship and this is the reality that you're signing up for? And so it's kind of processing some of the differences, hopefully without judging or shaming either person, but creating some open dialogue so that each partner can communicate with each other well and turn to each other for support um, and understanding. So I know that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, you deal with, you know, just mental health in general, but I want to shift the focus a little bit to, like, child therapy. You know, and I often think about, again, you know, kids growing up in, you know, inner city, uh, inner city areas that, you know, high crime, impoverished, and things that they're seeing every day. I was fortunate enough to be sheltered from that. Or say a child growing up in rural America who comes from a very poor family or a family that's infested with domestic violence. Like, mm-hmm. where where do these children get therapy? Because I know that schools have counselors, but I mm-hmm. personally have never known someone to utilize their services. And do you mm-hmm. think it would be beneficial to have a child therapist in inner city schools? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, a lot of what you described, whether it be witnessing violence in the community or witnessing violence in the home, causes trauma. Um, and trauma is connected to feeling anxious, feeling hypervigilant, having flashbacks. It's connected to a lot of really difficult symptoms and experiences. So, you know, people talk about PTSD, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, for veterans who have returned home. And that's something that, you know, kids who witness violence in the community also can experience. Um, In terms of child therapy, uh, often therapy with children is best done in the context of a family, and sometimes it's done individually. I started my training doing therapy with children and adolescents and their families, and I worked at a community mental health center. And so I saw some clients in the center, and I also went to schools, the mm-hmm. most of the schools that I would work at were affiliated with, um, like, close to housing projects in Chicago. And so I would do, if you're doing community mental health, you need to go where the people are. Um, and sadly, mental health and community mental health is really underfunded, right? It's a huge problem. Um, and so what it means is that many, many kids are not, getting the services they need. There are psychologists and counselors and social workers in schools, and often, at least in Chicago public schools, there's one psychologist for a handful of schools, and there may be one or two social workers, but there's, you know, they're overworked, right? And so some of the kids may get services, mm-hmm. but not everyone. So this is a real challenge, um, and in some ways it's really connected to um, – mass incarceration and the problems that we see there. So I think the head of corrections in Illinois at one point said that he's running the largest mental health facility in the state because many, many people who have mental illnesses end up in jail, right? And that's where they get treatment um, because we're not funding community mental health centers and we're not providing services to people um, when they need them, and then they're, you know, ending up in a situation where maybe they break the law and or they get arrested, um, and then they're in the justice system, which is a real problem, particularly in urban areas where people don't may not have access to um, private therapy um, or in rural areas, right, where there's not many mm-hmm. therapists at all. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up, like, access to care and funding because I was just going to ask you, like, you know, I just feel like it's a vicious cycle. You know, if I'm, if I'm poor and I have a lot on my plate, I'm working several jobs, 
like, where do I get access to care? And if so, how? Because if I say, if I'm on Medicaid, do therapists accept Medicaid? Is that covered? Um, is that, you know, covered with mental health? Like, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a good question. So there are therapists who do accept Medicaid and Medicare. Um, again, they're sort of few and far between because they are. So the they're going to be more likely to be centers and community mental health centers or centers affiliated with hospitals who accept Medicare and Medicaid. They certainly exist, um, but there are not enough, right? So they are, they're there. Um, and some centers also do like sliding fee sales. So like when I worked at DePaul Community Mental Health Center, we accepted Medicaid. And then for people who didn't have Medicaid or Medicare, we, you know, like maybe a session was $5, maybe it was free, right? And part of the reason mm-hmm. that we did that is because there were a lot of trainees, right? So I was training there as a doctoral student and I was getting training. And so that's what also happens is that, um, for better or for worse, a lot of the facilities that provide therapy and services for people um, who have Medicaid or Medicare are, you know, being seen by trainees. And I think trainees can provide excellent care, but it's also challenging that, that sometimes the people who need the highest level of care because they have the most life stressors and things going on mm-hmm. also get some of the most inexperienced therapists, therapists which is, you know, it's a challenge. Um, and Basically, we need more policies that infuse funding um, into these into these um, sectors, right? We need more funding so that people can get adequate care and can get it quickly. Mm. Well, I had one more question for you. Now, okay. this is, this is com- completely off topic, but I'm I'm just interested. So, okay. Your how do you how's your dating life? Like when you date somebody and you let them know that you know you're you're a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> do people like are guys like she's trying to get in my head. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what she's asking these particular questions for. And it could be just like regular questions that you know you ask on a date or or in a relationship or something like that. Is is it like that for you or is it a little different? That's a good question. Um, so, like, I'm in a relationship right now, and that is mm-hmm. not an issue, right? So my boyfriend is very affirming of therapy in general, and he's not suspicious, but I'm trying to analyze him, and I don't feel like I am. I do think that I ask questions. I ask different sorts of questions probably than the average person. I kind of mm-hmm. spend my days asking questions to get to know people better. And so mm-hmm. I think it's possible that some people – that I've dated, you know, when I was dating casually or whatever in the past, that some people were uncomfortable with it. I guess I would say that the people who were more uncomfortable with it or sort of, I don't know, paranoid that I was analyzing them and suspicious of the process, like it probably didn't go very far, right? Because you know, it's just kind of incompatible because on a certain level, like that's just how I am. I'm curious about people. I'm going to ask questions like that. And it's not, uh-huh. I'm not, there's no malintent. I'm not trying to figure out if you're diagnosable. I'm not trying to figure out what's wrong with you. I'm just kind of curious. Um, right. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I think the issue for me in the past has been more when I'm actually in a relationship and then I end up being like, this is what I think you should do to be a better partner because this is what I know <laughs> works better. Right? Like, that's not so helpful to be the couple therapist and the partner. That's not, right. that hasn't been a good strategy in the past. Okay. Well, it seems like you have everything under control, so that's cool. (laughs) Not perfect. I should have tried. I should have known DZ was going to ask you that question. I should know. (laughs) So this is my last question, um, Dr. Gooden. Um, So, do you have any parting words of wisdom just to the Black community in general, just dealing with? what we're going through now as far as police brutality yeah. or just a person who's feeling down, sad, depressed, you know, grief, despair, like what parting words would you like to give them? Okay. So I would say, first of all, if whatever you're feeling is okay and totally understandable. So I think many of us are experiencing a complex, combination of emotions. You might be experiencing anger, sadness, fear, frustration, um, 
hopelessness, right? There's so many things. And so I really encourage everyone to accept and acknowledge how you're feeling. Try not to diminish it. Try not to judge yourself. Try not to feel like you should be responding in a different way. Know that you're responding because you're human, right? Even if you're numb, right, this is part of being human. So, um, and I think the second thing is try to take care of yourself, right? I know that it can be hard. I actually, the last blog post uh, I wrote, I'll give my website a little shout-out. I have a blog, um, and I write about mental health topics, particularly related to black women. The last one I wrote was about self-care as a form of activism, kind of playing on um, Audre Lorde's quote about that. And so taking care of yourself when you are having an emotionally difficult time is so important, right? So that means trying to get eight hours of sleep, trying to exercise some, eating regularly, doing something you enjoy, connecting to people you love. Those things really make a difference. And if you're interested in reading more about that or reading more about my post, you can check me out um, at www.dradiashani.com, so dradiashani.com. Yeah, and I hope that's helpful. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks. I'm really happy that you had me. I enjoyed myself. Uh, Do you have any other social media outlets you want to give out, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram? Snapchat, I don't know, everything. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Yeah, I'm on Twitter, so at Dr. Adia Shani, uh, D-R-A-D-I-A-S-H-A-N-I, and I'm also on Facebook. Um, My page is Dr. Adia Shani, and it's public, so you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook, and if you go to my website, you will also find links to those social media outlets. And, you know, if you have, if anybody listening has further questions for me, um, my email address, contact information is on the website. So feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, I think that I think that's pretty much it. Uh, you you kind of, you know, took my little sign when you went into your website. I was going to ask you about that. But, you know, it's, it's all good. Uh, I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's cool. Uh, well, again, uh, Brown Sugar and Spice, thank you so much for coming on. And please do not be a stranger to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy. I would be happy to come back if you want me on again. I can talk more about dating and couples therapy if you want. Oh, oh, yeah, we well, definitely going to have you back for that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a relationship um, segment in the fall. So we okay. will definitely have you back on the show to discuss that. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Okay. okay thanks well, so much. Well, people, thanks, that Didier. was Dr. Adia, you know, giving us some good old words of wisdom. Man, I mean, and it was, well, before I get a little talkative, uh, Dr. Say, your final thoughts, please. I I really thought it was a great show. Um, I went to college with her, actually. She's a very talented and smart young lady, but I really wanted her to come on the show and discuss, you know, that it's okay to have emotions. It's okay, it's okay to feel the way you feel, but I think the way we express them is very important, especially given, you know, what's going on in society. So I'm really happy she came in and explained that. And, you know, uh-huh. talked about the funding or the underfunding, I should say, of mental health access in the black community, because I think it's very important. And I think it's a topic that's not readily discussed. Um, like I said, it could be uh-huh. cultural because we see it as a sign of weakness. But mental health is just as important as physical health. And I feel like sometimes it's just overlooked. And I really want to touch on that. I know I felt a certain way. Um, I've had friends feel a certain way. And um, it's been a lot these past two weeks. So, like I said earlier, the show has been right on time. So, I'm very happy with the show tonight. There you have it, people. Dr. Faye's final thoughts. Yeah, I was very happy with the show, too. You know, more insight into, you know, some of the ways we as a community, black community as well, are, are thinking about stuff. And it was very insightful, I must say that. So... With that being said, we're going to wrap up the show. I want to thank 
everybody for tuning in and listening. And you guys, when is our next show, Dr. Faye? Uh, right now, I have some shows scheduled in August. Um, so one's entitled Black in Silicon Valley. Um, it's talking about, you know, tech startups and getting funding with that. So I'm very excited about that show. And also, a dear friend of mine is going to talk about what it's like to be a mom in med school. She was a teenage mother, uh, had some setbacks in life, but she didn't let that deter her. So she's going to come in and talk about her life and hopefully inspire some other teen mothers that having a child is not the end of the world. So. Looking forward to that show as well, and those will be occurring in August. Cool, cool, cool. Dr. Faye, I must say you have done an extremely great job at getting, you know, positive forces on this network, and hopefully you continue to do a stellar job at that. Well, thank you. You know, I'm all about positivity Um, right now. I just feel (laughs) like, you know, there are so many negative negative images of African-Americans in the media, on television. Quite frankly, I think, I think it's unfair. I know some phenomenal people who are doing extraordinary things, and you simply just don't hear about those stories. So hopefully uh-huh. for any of the listeners that in some way, shape, or form, they are being inspired to be the best version of themselves, and that's my goal with each of these segments. Absolutely. And I couldn't put it any better myself, people. And with that being said, we stay tuned in August. We're coming back with you, brown sugar and spice. And we will see y'all then. Record better audio anywhere with Motive Digital Microphones from Shure. Easy-to-use options like the MV88 plug directly into your phone or computer and include a free app. Create studio-quality sound for podcasts, music, and videos. Visit Shure.com to learn more.